something that I have noticed a lot uh, in my journeys and in my listening to people around their creativity is as as the same with any part of our lives we always have a story that comes with it Mm. and people's creative stories like the story of their creativity where it where it came from and often the the big thing I notice is everyone goes through a shutdown moment like Mm. everyone goes through something that happened to them something someone said something something did that that shut them down Mm. and then those who are still creative now it's kind of often it's it's a long process of coming out of that Mm. Mm -hmm. um for some people it's it's almost like the shutdown moment can happen instantly and then for a few people it's it's like something will change instantly to free them again but often it's such a long process Mm. um so i was thinking about that uh, in relation to my life, in relation to this podcast, mm-hmm. and wondering, I'd, I'd love just to chat about our creative story. The Deep Place on Creativity and Spirituality. My name is Joy Prouty. And I'm Joel McCaro. Welcome to our podcast. When someone is steady enough for a moment, when they stop swirling around, when I can get them to look me in the eye and say, who are these pictures really for? If you open up a drawer, imagine your child opening a drawer in 30 years and pulling out a picture of you right now. How do you want them to remember you? Because this has nothing to do with how you feel. This has to do with who you are to them, who you are right now, because you are so beautiful. And usually they'll giggle and smile. And it's always like after they think the picture's taken, then they take an exhale and then I take another picture. And that's always the one. Where did your creativity begin, Joy? Um, Can I call you Joyous on this podcast? <laughs> I have another friend that her name is Joy, and I just call her Joyous. But then, just... you, but then I would—that's her name. Oh, that is her name. That's yes, her but I never—I hardly ever see her. <laughs> I can't, I can't replace her. I can't. <laughs> I have to have my own that's special true. nickname. Uh, what special nickname can I give you? <laughs> I don't know. I won't call you by your last name. That's a very Aussie thing to do. Prouty. How's it, how's it going, Prouty? I kind of like it. Oh, do you? Should I call you Prouty? <clears> I, think I think it's fine. Whichever. <laughs> I'll find some kind of Okay, you let me know when you come up with an original. Okay. okay. things begin for you? Do they begin with being open or begin with being shut down? Well, the thing that, that, that really helped me as a child to process, that to, to bring some sort of resolution to all of the emotions I was feeling was right. to, to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I, when I channel that place of trying to remember the little girl inside me and what made her happy, she was always making up stories in her head and Mm. you know I was the character and you know I remember this what the grass felt like beneath my feet Mm. in my backyard as a kid and that's the place I would go in the swing set and that's where I would dream up all these stories and 
um, I wrote so many poems. I remember my first one, and um, it said, I'm only a child, I'm only a kid. I don't know nothing but a little bit. I don't know love but want to fly like a dove. I'm only a child without a name. Wow. When did you write that? I I can't believe you still remember that. It was so etched in my memory because it was so important to me. You know, it was, you talk about writing the words that you need to read. You know, I I couldn't make sense of why I felt so lonely um, and why things felt so hard. And and I never even really understood what the poem meant, but I knew that I felt like I was... I don't not known or I was a child without a name, yeah. uh, you know, lost. I was yeah. a lost child, mm. and um, and so I think that I got scared to share them with people, right. and so they got hidden away, and the the notebooks got hidden and hidden and hidden, and then I just decided that 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 wasn't a practical solution. I couldn't be writing poems as a grown up. and so then I think I was always looking for another vessel as mm. to where to put how to process the mm. the emotions if mm. I'm a highly emotional person <laughs> no surprise um, but I've realized you know that it's I have to really conserve my energy mm. and so I'm continually trying to find a vessel where I can put the most amount of my heart with yeah. uh, with it bearing the least amount of extra weight upon mm. my mind or my Mm. body Mm. and so you know I think photography you know it's over time I have the the story the the story that really gave me the push to become a photographer is I went to Cambodia when I was 20 and I spent six weeks there and I brought my camera I didn't know how to use my camera I was just there to help I was working in an AIDS orphanage And uh, I walked into this room where a mother had just given birth, and their, her whole family was there. I realized they were all they were all quarantined; they couldn't leave. Um, most of them had AIDS, and if the baby was born there, it would probably die there. And she, had, I mean, the placenta was still attached. And I walked in with my camera, and you know, just watched and she had just given birth moments before and she saw me a white woman that had this thing around my neck that she didn't know what it was and she knew that I wasn't I probably wasn't sick or as sick as she was and she came up to me and she lifted up her baby and she pulled my shirt down to so my breast was out and she pushed pushed her baby on to me for me to to nurse the baby And I was wow. 20 and, you know, not really, I didn't understand a lot about the world yet. I mean, I understood pain and what was going on and that she 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 kept pushing me out the door to yeah. take her baby so that her baby could live. Wow. And it, it shifted something in my heart where I, I just, I felt... It was a it was a feeling I didn't ever want to forget because yeah. it was it was I felt the pain of someone else's brokenness to an extent where she was willing to give up her child so that it, wow. the child could live, and I was so stunned. I spent a lot. I said, you know, obviously I couldn't have to, I couldn't take the baby, and so I spent time with them, and I took a bunch of pictures. And so before I left, I knew I wanted to go. To, before I left to come back to America, I wanted to go back, back and bring them the pictures, which didn't seem like a big deal to me. You know, one hour photo. It took it was like three dollars in yeah. Phnom Penh. I got them developed and went back and. Um, walked into that room and handed the photographs to her and she fell to her 
knees and started weeping and was looking at them and she was she was looking at me and looking at the people around and she was just she couldn't figure it out and I there was a translator there and he said he didn't understand how 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 I could do that she didn't under she didn't know what a camera was yeah she didn't understand how she could be holding a picture of her family in her hands she she had never had a family picture that's incredible wow. and so I realized this I I couldn't understand what she was saying. She was yeah. just weeping. I mean, we had a translator, but I still couldn't understand. Yeah, yeah. But I understood the power of the photograph. Wow. And so I came home, and I made these huge albums, and I showed them to everyone that I could. And I didn't ever think that I would have a career doing photography, but I realized to be able to show these pictures, I could, I could use it as a vessel to tell their story in a way that could change their perspective too, and also help with fundraising. Or you know, it could serve a bigger purpose over than just. I don't know, keeping them in a drawer. Wow. And so I knew photography was my thing. Wow. And so I came home and I was going to college at the time for something totally different. And I yeah. just knew I have to do this. And then I just, you know, there, there it went. But it was never about, I knew I'm supposed to be a photographer. It was just, I, I, I've always known I was supposed to carry people's stories yeah. and yeah. to put them down in some sort of form, whether it be writing or photo or film or whatever, whatever gets me close enough to changing yeah. someone's perspective or softening their heart. Yeah. So as a, as a kid, it was a way for you to process through your own story. But then it sounds like when it, when it came to the photography stuff, it was, it was not like the photography for you wasn't your own self. Mm. process or perhaps it was that as well but mm. it was it was a way to to help other people process through what they were going through yes it I I just realized it gave me a door to to talk to whoever was before me yeah um and then over time I've realized you know all these I Yes, telling other people's stories is, is such a beautiful gift, but it's really I'm I'm really trying to tell my own story. Yeah, wow. That I think that's that's the ultimate goal of most artists. Yeah. You know, once they've been doing something for long enough, they realize maybe what they've been trying to actually do is just tell their own story. Yeah, that's really true. One um one of my favorite sayings or quotes in the world is from Malam Kundera, um, who's a writer who says. Um, he says the first step in the liquidation of a people is to take away their story, mm. to to burn the books, to erase their memory, and to feed them a new story till they forget the the true story, the old story of who they are. Mm. And um and I've always taken that and recognized it, like recognized it socially in terms of um indigenous people so indigenous people in australia mm. um one of the first things that was done is we take away their story so that we can treat them we dehumanize them and treat mm. them however we want to mm. um and uh same as over here i would say with indigenous people here in in the united states and um in berlin where the books were mm. burnt and mm. and i remember getting to kneel down on the, the square in Berlin where those one of the most famous pictures of the books being burnt during the war and um, the inscription reads um, the burning of books is only the beginning where the books are burnt they will burn the people mm. like when you take away someone's story you're taking away the very essence of who they are mm. when you take away someone's memory and this is why Alzheimer's and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff is so awful um, 
because it's taking it's taking the core of who they are and that's mm-hmm. what families wrestle with when they're getting mm-hmm. to when when their parents when people's parents are getting to that age of life um but what it also made me realize in terms of what you're saying and some of your story and and why I do my poetry and that kind of stuff is that if it's if it's true that the first step in the destruction of a people or a person as well not just people's society but mm-hmm. a person is to take away their story then then it's also true that the first step in the restoration of a people is the restoring of their story mm. the naming of what they have forgotten the mm. remembering of who mm. they are mm-hmm. um, and I and I love so much of what you were sharing then about your story reminded me of that mm. that it's this um, it's this process of of remembering of renaming of reclaiming someone's story mm. what was was there a um, is there a shutting down moment of your story of your creativity that mm. you remember when when were things shut uh, down for you I think it's a continual shutting down process over and really? over again yeah, well I well, think it's um yeah facing resistance it's something I've faced since a very young child I've you know um I it wasn't like I woke up and decided I would be an artist it's I've always faced the resistance of of, uh naming the naming the abuse of my childhood or actually looking at that so when you when you say uh when you take away their story well I think it took me a while to, to it takes a while to yeah. dig out your story. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and so absolutely. as far as like one shutdown moment, I think yeah. I've had a thousand shutdown yeah, moments. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I can, and getting really brave and doing something really Im- important for myself, which is uh, the peeling the onion back. And then yeah. um, once I get to that thing, sometimes I'll get to when we're remembering things, sometimes we remember things that it just can be a memory that shuts yeah. us down. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, or How we remember it. Yes, or having to process through it. And then I think the shutdown moment always leads to the awakening moment huh. yeah. because the shutting down means that I have to look at something, yeah. that I've, I've uprooted something that has to be looked at. The shutdown becomes an, a knowing, a, a gradually unlearning of whatever the mm. thing that's holding me back from creating. Yeah. But but the resistance is also the thing that shows us what what needs to be made. What yeah. what the thing that needs to be birthed is usually the thing that's inside me that I don't know what needs to be birthed until I process the thing that's stopping me from what getting that? any going any farther. shutdown moment um in my terms of my creativity I'd I'd I I would say I was a creative kid I loved creative stuff and I um and I remember I was one of the first kind of creative things that I did was this thing in Australia some parts of Australia called tournament of the minds Mm -hmm. which was like for the smart kids to Mm -hmm. um a bit of a challenge type thing um, that you'd do and you'd have to solve a problem and you'd have to creatively present the solution to that problem. Mm. Um, so it was a great kind of program and I loved it. Like I got to do, like to think creatively, to problem solve, mm. to then perform, to act. It was one of those those kind of things. And then I remember about like just after that happening and, and loving that kind of thing, it was my, um, my maths teacher 
for some reason, I said something in class, I don't know what it was, and um, maybe it was something cheeky or something like that, and she she turned around and she um, asked me something and I kind of had to explain myself. Mm. And, and then my face started going red mm. as I was explaining myself and she pointed it out like your mm. face is going like as a humiliation thing um don't you love teachers and their mm. insecurity wow. and sensitivity sometimes mm. I've met many incredible teachers and just a few who seem to um i think i say it in my welcome home poem actually mm. they take their burdens and place them upon you yeah. and and that's absolutely what happens so this this kid who like loved creativity and Mm. loved and was beginning to kind of think about performance and being in front of people and loving that I was suddenly I was shut down and I totally shut down totally embarrassed when your face is good and my face still always goes red but now it's part of who I am (laughs) but as as a kid then it absolutely shut down my creativity and I uh I didn't I didn't perform theatrically again Mm. until um, two or three years ago now that uh, Anna McGann and I did a, did a theatre show called The People of the Sun. Uh, that was the first time. So I'd done performance poetry like I'd, mm-hmm. and had done lots of speaking in front of people, but in terms of kind of dialogue acting, mm-hmm. I had not touched it and mm. was petrified of it until that point. And I'm wow. 36, so that's from when I was... I don't know, 13, 14 year old mm-hmm. till mm-hmm. 33, 34, yes. whenever Anna and I did this show. Um, that's a long gap. Yes. That's how long that shut me down for. I, I started breaking out of it um, later on. I remember I grew up in, in church world and a, and a friend um, asked me to speak at the youth group. And I was like, petrified. Like mm-hmm. I was the person at school after this occurred, after that had happened with my maths teacher, I was... I would, um, I'd chuck a sickie is what Aussies would say. (laughs) You're going to have to translate that for Americans. Pretend to be sick so that I didn't have to go to school. (laughs) Chuck a sickie. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to have to steal that. Good. My kids will love that. Um, I, if we had like public speaking days where I'd have to get up and speak in front of the class, I just couldn't do it. So, um, uh, I, then this friend invited me to speak and I remember... Um, I remember being petrified, trying to get the courage up to do it, and I did it. I I mm. somehow managed to get up there and share. And I remember, I remember someone saying after, um, like, what you shared. I I never knew someone else had the same story, the same mm. like was processing through the same things. Mm. And I just don't feel so lonely anymore. Uh, yes. And and so and it was what it was my first time that I really began to mm. to go ah oh, okay, and and the way that I phrase it is, um, that as I've rethought about this, I realise that that what I have to say is more important than the fear that stops me from saying it. Mm. What I have to say is more important than the fear that stops me from saying it. And so I took that and I ran with it. When's, what, do you not have shutdown moments anymore, Joel? Do I have shutdown moments anymore? Yeah. I absolutely have shutdown moments. Um, I have worked really hard, I think, to, to challenge them. And so my, my personality is when something comes up against me, I go harder. Um, so some people's personality is when 
when something comes against them, they shrink away. I will, I will go harder and go harder until I can conquer this thing. Mm. Um, and so I think I, I probably do that a lot, mm. which is both a healthy thing and an unhealthy thing mm. um, as any of our, our great strengths become our great weaknesses. And I give myself like 300% to anything that I'm doing. Mm. Um, but it means that uh, I leave things... What I'm not doing, the things on the periphery of my life, then start to be neglected. <laughs> it's so interesting because I can, no matter what, I mean, I feel like I put 300% of myself into yeah. things too, but then yeah. I just, I can't, I can't, I cannot go on <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. in any capacity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> things on the peripheral don't just fall away. Like the entire thing melts down. <laughs> um, and yeah. so yeah. I, I would love, I, I would talk about that a little bit more that, so for, for some of us that are more, I'm still learning what it means to conquer fear. I mean, not yeah. saying that you've conquered it I'm completely, yeah. right? But it sounds like you can look at it and, mm-hmm. and see it there mm-hmm. and not let it bring you down. Yes. So how does how does one practically do that? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, I think what I do is I don't let it dictate. Like fear is always going to be there and to shape what we do. But what I what I always say to my little son, my little four and a half year old son is, is courage and bravery is, is doing it afraid. Mm. It's, it's actually choosing to step forward. And it's not about not having fear because I don't think we can ever get to that point. I think we'd probably be inhuman if we Mm. didn't, but it's about in the midst of being scared in the midst of having fear. It's about stepping forward and doing what you know you are called to do anyway mm-hmm. um and and the way that I practically live that out um in terms of performing my poetry it means that every time I get up on stage when I feel scared and there's times when I don't these days mm-hmm. um some people like fear grips them always mm-hmm. yes and every time they get up they, they still feel fear that's that's not me but there's definitely moments particular moments mm-hmm. and different things that fear comes up in me and my practice of just doing it anyway of stepping forward and performing my poetry even though I might Mm -hmm. be scared and often it's Mm -hmm. it's to the big audiences that I'll I'll feel fear come up sometimes Mm -hmm. to the thousands of people that I get to perform to or whatever um when I step forward and do it anyway I'm I'm challenging it in that moment but Mm -hmm. I'm doing I'm doing more than that I'm challenging fear in my life in general Mm. Like our so our, our microcosm world really is our macro macrocosm world. I think mm. it's Richard Raw who says how we do the small things is how we do the big things, mm. and so every time I step forward in my fear in just the small little things, mm. I'm actually stepping forward in big ways mm. in the in the big things of life. Mm. I don't know if you found that same similar thing. Yes, I'm learning. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think I've been going uh, afraid all my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Doing it anyway, despite the fear, has been my strategy. Yeah. Um, But I'm I've been trying to figure out what 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 haven't what haven't I uncovered yet that's holding me back. You know, once you start digging and you see that you're afraid, well, then you have to figure out. 
well, for, for me, it's like a strategy, right? Like I, my mind doesn't stop the same way it's swirling with creative ideas. It's yeah. swirling on how to, uh, how to conquer the fear, how to not even yeah. let it be there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, maybe it's just a, a continual learning. I don't know. Yeah. But fear, fear doesn't get less for you. Has fear got less for you? It's really a learning to rewire my brain, right. you know, because I didn't, I didn't even realize I was afraid. Yeah. I think that's really the heart of it is I didn't realize I was afraid. Mm. I realized I'm just, I thought, well, I just, I want things to be perfect, but I'm not a perfectionist, you know, or I want to have control of these things because I love, I, I, I love this person that I'm trying to yeah. take care of, or I'm trying yeah. to keep them safe or yeah. fear can, uh, it can look really beautiful sometimes yeah. or it can look like love sometimes. Yeah. And so I'm trying to really look at things and see is what is this, Mm. you know? And then if it's something that has been, it's like when we're uprooting ourselves and looking at where did the creativity begin and where was the place that taught me that maybe I shouldn't go down this road or it wasn't worthwhile or, You know, for you, it's like there was one specific thing, and I was thinking as you were talking, what was there one specific thing for me? And and I can't think of it. It's just been a continual, always wrestling of how to make yeah. good from this yeah. thing that is really painful. Yeah. yeah. And and maybe that's why the fear does always have to be there in some way because that's how that's what makes us realize it's important. When, when fear shut me down then, when during my early teenage years, I never recovered that creativity. I didn't ever think of myself as a creative person again um, till much later in life. Mm. And it was through, um, it was through a trip to, really fascinatingly, similarly to yours in terms of you having this experience with this lady in Cambodia. So I went to... Uh, Thailand, so on the border of Thailand and Burma, to mm-hmm. a an orphanage for kids who managed to escape across the border from Thai, from mm. Burma, from the army there that goes in and wipes out whole villages and kills off people and um, kids who come across the border then um, go into this orphanage to the bamboo school and I was uh, run by this incredible New Zealand lady named Mama Cat. So I got to go and spend time at this place. I remember my first experience going there. I I walked into this place um, at the same time as a mother came in with her baby boy on her back, mm. and and the boy, um, the boy had been really sick, and she'd been trying to find medical attention, trying to get her baby well. Um, but she couldn't just go into a Thai hospital later mm. because she didn't have a Thai citizenship ID card. She was Burmese. I came into the orphanage the same time she did, and as she did, she realised that her baby had just died on her back. <sighs> and so um, I kind of entered to this wailing mother, um, this screaming mother, and and then my job was to go up into the the bamboo jungle in this little there's this strip of land called no man's land between thailand and burma and it was my job with two of the orphan boys there to dig the grave for this little baby boy mm. and to put him inside it and to bury this boy and and i remember um i remember we sang amazing grace and i remember i remember doubting it at the time mm. 
place be amazing if this if this boy who if this boy lived where I did just be able to go down this mother would just be able to take him down to the hospital to the doctors and and get treatment and get her little boy well and she couldn't and and I it broke me it was it just it it was a moment that both restored my creativity and I'll tell you why in a second it restored my creativity and broke my life because it was one of those first big realizations of the ignorant uh, Western middle class, upper class life that I had lived without realizing the reality of the world around me. So this, this, I got angry. I got angry at my parents for bringing me up in such affluence. I got angry at myself for being so ignorant. I got angry at God. How could there be a God who would let this happen? And I just, I needed some way to process through it. I needed some way to get out what I was feeling, and and that's when I began to write. That's when my creativity really, like I really began again as my thing, as I, it was my way to, to process through these feelings of anger that were tearing me apart inside, just to get it out on the paper. And I remember sitting there one night hearing gunshots in the valley over in Burma, um, far away, and, and writing out these feelings of what I was feeling and the writing was poetic and it looked poetic and mm. and it became it became my way of processing through what was happening inside mm. um, and so these those few moments for me restored they began to restore my creativity it shattered my life and it put me on a whole long road of questioning and wrestling and struggling and um, wrestling with western society and wrestling with god and and all that kind of stuff but um but it, it freed me. Mm. It freed me because I think I could take my... Again, I could take my eyes off my own fear and what was squashed by this experience in early high school. And now it was about something larger than myself. Mm. Um, it's where my poetry began. Amazing you found this creative uh, outlet of photography yes. um, stemming out of your experience in Cambodia um, what's what's kind of been the the seasons of your creative life since mm. then has it all been summer seasons mm. of glory and sunshine <laughs> oh definitely not I mean what's it look like? I made it look like that for a lot of the really? seasons <laughs> well uh, you know Sun flares were quite popular in family photography Sun for many flare. years. Yeah, you know? okay. Um, I, it sounds funny, right? But like yeah. that's so coming back from Cambodia, I had this yeah. great awareness, uh, this this knowing that I needed to bring light to people's stories, and I could use mm. my camera to do that. And mm-hmm. so um, I was, I felt such a conviction about it that I. Um, dropped out of college wow. <laughs> and um or I just I realized that I Were wanted to take pictures I was my, my uh it was communication was right. my major I just wasn't yeah. sure I thought maybe I wanted to be a psychologist maybe yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a reporter maybe yeah. a, I I don't know but I realized all these things I was trying to figure out do I want to be this they all circled around people's stories yeah yeah 
Um, and so being able to find an artistic way of um, communicating, yeah. um, it really felt so, it really felt like freedom. Yeah. yeah. And so then I came home and realizing this, this is what I need to do as a profession, you know, because I think once we have an awareness of what our calling was, at least for me, we, we, I thought, well, this needs to be my career. Mm. And so when you take something that mm. you deeply care about, that yeah. you know in your bones that you have to do, and you try to do it, and then you bring money into the equation and yeah. have to put a price value on yourself um, and please the person that's yeah. paying you yeah, rather yeah. than telling the story that you would think would be the best one to tell, which I always wanted to tell the honest story. Especially in photo land. Like, <laughs> yeah. Have you had lots of people saying, can you just take my cheeks out and like, yeah, yeah. want the pretty picture perfect? Of course, of so, course, yeah. of course. Yeah. And, you know, so that's talking about the seasons of, yeah. you know, so I started out in the season of wanting it to be as honest as possible. Yeah. And then, but realizing that this American world that we live in, that or Australian world. Oh, well, <laughs> I, is it, Australian. Is it like? Is it the same in Australia? It's different. It's different there. This Western world. Well, I don't know Australia, but for at least being here, catering yeah. to, I don't know what your clients are like. I'm so interested to know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what photography is different. If it's different there, but. For me, I found that, and it's changing more now, but this was uh, 17 years ago yeah. uh, that I started. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's faces were airbrushed. And, yeah. you know, I was, everyone wanted to have their clothes perfectly matched. And wow. their hair yeah. has to, you know, and if the child starts crying during the session, I thought, you know, I want to tell people stories. Whereas the greatest story, the, the greatest uncovered story is in families. Hmm. So I want to photograph families. But then when I w tried to make a career at photographing families, I realized this line of work of uh, high end, yeah. you know, where you have to charge a certain amount of money to live. Yeah. This kind of portraiture caters to people that want to look, or I was in an area where yeah. the majority of my clients, they wanted their pictures to look really nice. Yeah. And as though there was no crying that happened during yeah. the session or that they didn't get in a fight on the way to the park where we were taking yeah. the pictures or yeah. it grew to a place where I couldn't see why I'd fallen in love with it or wow. why I wanted to go down that road. And yeah. and then once you have devoted your life to doing it and you make it a career, you, it's very hard to shift Yeah. Um, or yeah. feel it, it's hard to make money telling honest stories because the stories I really wanted to tell and continually want to tell are those from people that don't have an exorbitant amount of money to spend on portraiture. Um, Absolutely. And so that wow. can be really hard for an artist. Yeah, totally. <laughs> an artist. So for me, I support. Have you been able to hold that intention? Uh, it's it... it's always been an, a new leaping off point, you know. Right. So so you know, I have five kids and uh, we'll yeah, sustain yeah. A, a family, and yeah. you know, my husband is a stay at home dad, and we yeah. have an, an unconventional lifestyle, and we yeah. homeschool, and um, and so I'm responsible for providing for our family wow. and so you can't it's hard to take a leap of faith yeah. um creatively yeah. when yeah. when your family is dependent yes so yeah. there's this really hard line of walking responsibility and uh what my uh struggling artist yeah. brain would like to jump into doing what you'd love to do <laughs> and what you have yes. to do to and, provide yes and so i think 
the seasons of this has been always a jumping, a leaping off point into a more honest place where I, I, I always, and, and I realize my biggest opposition is maybe not the clients that want things to look perfect, but me thinking that the clients want things to look perfect. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps they, they want honesty too, but they needed to learn that I thought that that was good wow. and worthy of being shown and yeah. documented. And, and so it, it was gradual, right? This yeah. season where I knew I wanted something more honest, well, it would happen in a session where when a child would start crying, instead of me saying, it's okay, take a minute, I would say, yeah. no, stay, stay right there and, yeah. and go ahead and just, just let them cry. Just hold them mm. right there. That's perfect. This is so beautiful. Yeah. Really starting to be intentional about affirming the things that were could be perceived as imperfect. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's kind of been my <laughs> gradual leaping off point before actually financially shifting into saying, you know, that's when I started doing the full day sessions where I, I said I wanted more time. And, you know, yeah. it's just a, and always a jumping off. But it's always scary thinking, are people going to understand? Yeah. And then it always comes down to the, re- it doesn't really matter if people understand or not. It's that if I'm not doing something that I care deeply about, yeah. either I, I am going to burn out and we're yeah. going to have to get a job at the grocery store, yeah. um, which yeah. has been a consideration many times. <laughs> yeah. If it's really worth the emotions that come into sacrificing what you feel like your heart is telling you to do mm-hmm. or deciding, I think that this leap into more honest living documentation, whatever it may be, is more important than anything else. And I think that if I can really be honest and tell people this, if, if I can stand before them and when, when a mom says, I'm, I'm just don't feel like I look the the correct way to be documented or maybe next year, it's instead of me saying, okay, I'll just shoot the kids. Instead, it's me looking her right in the eye, putting the camera down and saying, why? Mm. Tell me. Let, mm. Look at me and talk to me about why. Because look at your kids. They're going to yeah. remember you right now. And it doesn't, you know, just it, it, it then becomes a, it's only fulfilling when it's more than photography. Because I never got mm. into it for photography. Right. It always has been about the story. Photography is your medium. To yes, to it's story. always the vessel. And so, I, wow. so if I view it in that way, I will not suffer burnout. Yeah. So that's when yeah. I jump into the unknown or I'm in the midst of jumping in, which means a price shift or a, yeah. uh, telling people that I only do a certain kind of thing or, or just doing the kind of work that I want of yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, I think that when someone is steady enough for a moment, when they stop swirling around, yeah. when I can get them to look me in the eye and say, who are these pictures really for? If you open up a drawer, imagine your child opening a drawer in 30 years and pulling out a picture of you right now. How do you want them to remember you? Because this has nothing to do with how you feel. This has to do with who you are to them, who you are right now, because you are so beautiful. And usually they'll giggle and smile. And then I get the real, like, then they let it out. And it's always like, after they think the picture's taken, then they take an exhale and then I take another picture. And that's always the one because they let their guard down. And so it's just having to look a little harder now mm. and find find ways for my own heart for storytelling to be satisfied, even in the midst of a, a career situation that might make me feel limited. Mm. I Before I go into sessions, I just think, 
I try to center my mind and just clear it completely and think about what can I give them. And I think that's what you do with your poetry too, is you just quiet yourself and you mm-hmm. think, what can I give them? Mm-hmm. And I think when any time where I feel unsatisfied or frustrated, it's either in the anticipation of something or the regret of mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. neither of which keeps me in the current moment. Mm-hmm. And so I just go in and my goal is to just be with them and look them in the eye as much as possible. Yeah no matter what. And so that can just the eye contact alone and being present with someone will disarm them and allow what could be a photo session that I couldn't have, you know, if I didn't deep dive, (laughs) I wouldn't have found it. But each, each piece of art that we give to someone else, every time they open themselves to being seen, I don't want anyone to feel like they've been left there alone. Mm. So, and when they look at the picture, I hope that's what they remember. This whole first season of the Deep Place podcast is sponsored by Whitley College, a theology college in Melbourne, Australia, that I've got to spend a lot of time at uh, over the last few years. And it's it's absolutely one of those communities that, that challenges people to see their life, their faith, their vocation, their creativity in different ways. It's it's a college willing to push at the edges of things and to ask difficult questions. You can check it out at www.whitley.edu.au. So now, what what season are you in now? A healing season. Right. Where it's I'm, I'm recognizing that all of the stories that I've been carrying for yeah. these 17 years, um, my clients have been teaching me. Mm. And that, that mother in Cambodia, she, she was a, one of my first wise teachers, mm. you know, that yeah. showed me what it means to love, yeah. to love her child so much. Yeah. And so I... I've realized with my... I've been really busy with my career for the entire time all of my children have been alive. Yeah. Um, and so I'm realizing now I carry these stories with, I carry them in my body like it's a, like it's a bag of stones, you know, wow. and each stone is a story, you yeah. know, and it's made yeah. me really heavy and weighed down. Wow. And it's really beautiful. And I, I often re- recall these moments that I'll have with these families because, like I said, I have these magnif- the magnifying glass looking at the, the deep soul of someone when they're not pretending to mm-hmm. be anything else. Mm-hmm. And I will uh, recall them in my dreams and in my nightmares and in my when I'm trying to make decisions, I'll recall these clients. And each one has taught me a great lesson. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I'm... The season is it's in the writing, it's writing those things down. Right. And so in trying to, instead of just snap, snap, snap all these pictures, yeah. instead really record the wisdom. And then I'm taking personal photographs of what those wise stories mean to me, like trying to embody the wisdom into one photograph that can represent it all. So, thanks. Well, it's um, it's I've been doing it for several years now, yeah. <laughs> and with each story that I write down, it's 
it makes me you're talking about freedom right that the creativity can bring freedom mm-hmm. well perhaps maybe I, that woman handed her child to me in Cambodia 17 years ago to give me the courage to go down this path of photography not to become a famous photographer but just to anchor me back to what my the thing is that in the very beginning that made me feel creative which was that poem that first poem you know that I, I, I don't I'm only a child but want to fly like a dove I'm only a child without a name well I know my name is joy now and joy means light and darkness and so I'm gonna manifest it so seasons for you see what 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 has that looked like as I said my my poetry started really started there in on, in Thailand and Burma as a way for me to process through what was happening inside me um, I then just like I kind of spent a little while writing uh, after that kind of the next year just writing and beginning to find a love of writing again mm. I, and I didn't I was again it was one of those things you don't realize you're missing until you come back to it and mm. you find it and you feel it and you, I'm reading words and I started read like I'd always read lots as a kid and throughout my teenage years but I just found this love of words mm. and how words could articulate such beauty mm. and how they could be phrased in such a way to draw out of an experience the true deepness of something Mm. and so I just began to play with words and loved that Mm. and um and then I found performance poetry so during that time I I had been teaching and lecturing um I mean then one of my students sent me a YouTube link to a performance poet a guy named Anise Mojgani and and it was one of those moments of watching something and and mind being blown going Mm. This, this is what I want to do. This mm. is what I want to do. And so taking um, what had begun there in Thailand and and then bringing it into performance. And I, I randomly, the next week, someone um, asked me to go along to a poetry open mic night and mm. I'd never been to one, never really heard that they'd happened before. Um, a week after I had seen mm. this guy, this week, I was like, oh, "This this actually happens here in Melbourne, where I where um uh-huh. where I live," and um, so went along. And again, it was this these moments, these poets getting up and sharing this poetry, and it moved me and and mm. stirred me. I was like, "Oh, I, this is incredible! I want to do this! I want to!" And so I took some writing that I'd done, and I went the next week to an open mic night, and I got up and I performed my poem and. I'm sure it was woeful in terms of performance and all that kind of. It was the very first time I did anything, but um, but there was something about it, mm. and it hooked me, and it was enough for me to go, I can I can do this. Maybe this this is a thing. And then because, as I said, I'm a very like I'll give it everything. I just gave it everything. Mm. I gave it everything, and I and poetry kind of took over my life. <laughs> it it's wow. it became my thing I loved it I started writing all the time that I could and performing whenever I could and going to lots of different poetry nights and I'd drag Heidi my wife along to poetry (laughs) nights and some of them would be great and some would be atrocious and and (laughs) she'd be like what the heck am I sitting in this pub listening to really bad poetry but it was it was such a beautiful time of this thing being birthed in me and me loving giving myself to it Mm. I um I think then because I 
because where my poetry had started on the border of Thailand and Burma and having that experience and my life in general has stemming out of that and a few other experiences was always like I need to whatever I do I need to give give it and give myself to something larger than myself mm. um, there's a guy named Frederick Beekner um, mm. who mm. says that your vocation is the intersection between the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness mm. and so the deep suffering and thirst and brokenness I I know, yeah. and pain yeah. of the world where that comes together with with your deep gladness, the stuff that makes you come alive. And poetry was making me come alive. So I'm like, how can I take this and connect it with the deep thirst, the deep mm-hmm. suffering, the deep hunger of the world? And so out of that started an organisation called the Centre for Poetics and Justice um, with some other performance poets. And and it as well just kind of took off and we'd go into mm-hmm. um, into high schools and a and, um, bunch of different organisations and communities and... and um, using poetry as a way for students wow. and people and kids and teenagers and older to tell their story. So you created something out of your passion yeah. that wasn't created before. This this is a yeah. this is a big deal. This is yeah. I, I think people always wonder how can I how can I do something with my art? I feel like I'm just one person. Yeah. You, yep. So it, you, you gathered the people. I gathered the people. Yeah, and so me and a few other um, performance poets and um I mean, poetry communities really do feel like communities and family, and poetry has this very inclusive manner about mm. it that allows people to come in and engage with it. And so for me, who loves, um, who is just passionate about uh, a world that is more equal than it is now mm. and passionate about engaging with the injustices of the world, mm-hmm. it, it can't happen through one person. It has to mm. happen through a group of people. And so I'm... My poetry, um, yeah, wasn't just my own creative outlet. It was a way to bring people together, to try to bring change to the world, to speak to the things that matter in our world, to to give voice to these students that I get to work with mm. and these, these teenagers who uh, many of them would have before their, their voice had been taken from them and we got to go in and... and give them back their voice wow, um, John. it was it was a really incredible beautiful time and, and it led to everything that I'm doing now so that went for a few years um and it it kind of took over my life as I said mm-hmm. I was I was still at that point I was lecturing at a college um and it got to the point where uh poetry and the center for poetics and justice and the lecturing that I was doing at this college table college it was like having two full-time jobs yeah and so it was so much so much so much and, and at some point I just had to stop and so I stopped and I just did poetry um stopped the, my lecturing and poetry mm-hmm. and center for poetics and justice and then we ended up finishing up and going overseas Heidi and I traveled mm-hmm. for 18 months mm-hmm. um overseas and the pilgrimage that that was was incredible um and there's lots of things to, to name about that. But in terms of, that's some story, in terms of the seasons for me, I think my poetry, uh, my poetry was always, you can't write poetry. I mean, you can write poetry in a non-authentic way, but people see through it pretty quickly. Mm. People see through it pretty quickly. And so my, if I was going to write something... Uh, f- 
and perform it than it needed to come from the heart. Mm. I can't bluff my way through that. Um, you don't you for people that haven't seen you perform, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> to hear you say that you could perform something that's not authentic. Yeah. For for those of you that haven't seen him or heard him, he he does not just speak his poetry. It comes out of his body like a hurricane <laughs> or like a like a like the like Niagara Falls. I mean, it's roar. He literally roars from yeah. it. So I don't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine you say. I mean, th- anyway, no. <laughs> you're very authentic. Yeah. Every every yeah. word that comes out is yeah. It has great power, or great power in its gentleness. Yes. Yeah. I I have chosen to give my poetry like that, and I keep on choosing that and it, it and it costs there's a cost to that there's a cost to um when I get up on stage I am totally I feel naked on stage mm. um metaphorically speaking I I do I give it all I give I pour out I become that vessel for that something larger to flow through me mm. um and it is it's a giving and it's a surrendering in that moment um, and being as authentic as I can within that moment and it totally wipes me out like mm-hmm. totally it, it has to the amount of emotional giving that you give to that space um, so I've had to go on that journey of trying to work out how to be a functioning human mm-hmm. and keep on being um, the, the creative <laughs> journey then of keep, how do I do that and still be emotionally engaged and authentic and present with my family with friends yes Joel how do you how does one do this (laughs) you want the answer yeah there is no answer it's 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 a balance it's a as someone once said to me it's one of those things that is not a problem to solve it's a tension to manage Mm. it's not a problem to solve it's a tension to manage and so I am constantly managing that tension and I fail at it and I'm all right at it and I walk that tension line and I fall to one side too much and I fall to the other side too much but um, I don't think there's an easy fix, easy answer for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's the constant... I think the answer is to constantly ask yourself the question, um, am I choosing to be present at home? Am I choosing to... Um, am I giving my family the emotional presentness that they need from me Mm. and if I'm not then I need to change how I'm engaging in my creative work as well my creative story then continues in terms of the season that I would be at now would be um, would be one of of I've been a successful performance poet and that's been wonderful and, and I've been acknowledged for that and people respond often to what I do and I get to tour the world with my performance poetry. Um, but I'm constantly pushing myself. I'm constantly pushing myself to the next thing. And so mm-hmm. um, poetry then, not just spoken word, but with music. And so started collaborating with mm-hmm. musicians and formed a band, John McCarroll and the Mysterious Few. And then, and then pushing myself again, going, what about 
what about theatre and more theatrical stuff? Mm-hmm. And so collaborating with Anna McGahn um, on bringing together the people of the sun as a theatre show and being writing that with her and being the main lead in that role mm-hmm. and touring that um, around. And, and that was an incredible experience. And, um, and then really getting into writing of books, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> non-fiction books and fiction books that I'm writing and... Um, I, I as well I have all these projects that I'm doing <laughs> I named them to you earlier today all yes. this stuff that I'm doing yes. and want to do and that's kind of how I live my life is there's yeah. there's six things that I'm work big things that I'm working mm-hmm. on at the moment um, and I just keep on going one to the other to the other but it also means within that in moving from what I'm acknowledged for performance poetry into a different field like like writing a novel trying to get a novel published there's been a big season of of lots and lots of rejections. Yes. The the writing, um, what all writers get is lots and lots of rejections that you put a manuscript to an agent to a publisher, mm-hmm. and it just gets rejected again and again and again until someone accepts it, and um, and that as much as we tell ourselves like what us writers always do is say, but you know Harry Potter got rejected <laughs> all these times, and yeah. and that helps a little bit, but it's still hard. It's yeah. still hard to. Um, to to feel those rejections of your writing and not take that personally, but but know that there's so many myriad of things that would cause the rejection to happen. And it's hard to not take it personal as your friend either. Yeah. Like I have a hard time not taking it personal yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because what are they thinking? Yeah. Uh, I it's it just it goes to prove. And really, I you have been so inspirational to me, mm. with for lack of a better word, mm. to know that you can be the most incredible writer, which mm. you are, Joel McCarrow, mm. and still be rejected how many times? Uh, it, triple digits. That, yeah, yeah. That's, too, that's a lot and that's way too lot. many. And so <laughs> so for someone like yeah. myself or anyone else out, out there listening that's trying yeah. to write their first book, yeah. Yeah. to sit across from this genius of a man and know that he's been rejected this many times you have to just sit on and I was with you and you're mm. going to those publishers yeah, and, you were. Yeah. and and praying before you walked yeah. in you know and yeah. that it and to know that it watching you and seeing that you're disappointed but you yeah. you are you you're rooted in the in the fact that you know that what you're writing is important and whether yes. they believe in it or not or, yeah. or pull it onto their shelves or not it, you're gonna keep going yeah yeah absolutely I am and it kind of comes back interestingly it comes back in a different way to that to what I said before what I have to say is more important than the fear that stops me from saying it that's not just mm-hmm. in terms of performance but that has to be in terms of this like it's fear that comes up when we get rejected it's a hit to our ego it's mm-hmm. a um, it's a maybe I'm not good enough maybe I, all the questioning starts coming up but I need to come back to that statement that that what I have to say is more important than the fear mm-hmm. that stops me from doing it yeah. um, but the other thing that I remember and maybe I'll maybe because this is kind of in some ways it was it's the beginning and the finish it's the one of the peaks one of the climax and that I come back and remember in terms of my creative story is I remember being in Washington DC on this trip when I went around and it 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 kind of feels like this moment where everything had been all this stuff had been happening and my my creativity had had blossomed and I'd taken it and brought it to Australia and started Centre for Poetics and Justice and 
then and became a full-time poet and then did this trip overseas this big trip and and I've been really inspired and shaped by um, Carl Gibran uh, mm-hmm. his book the the prophet and all of his stuff I then got and read and and I remember coming into um, Washington DC and knowing that there was a Carl Gibran memorial mm-hmm. and so I I went to find it one day um i just went by myself and i got on some public transport and knew where it was and and made my way there and didn't realize i was coming in from the back of the memorial um but i i came in from the back and there was this big kind of foresty hill um that and i knew that it was just over there so i'm like i guess i can i'll just walk through this forest to get up the hill to this is obviously on the outskirts of Washington DC. And um, so I trud, it's a hot day and I'm sweating. I trudge up this hill and I'm just about to, um, just about to kind of get over the peak. And I look and there's a family of deer that have walked in right in front of me. And it was almost like they, it was this greeting. It was this moment of, of like welcome. Yes. And, and it was that moment where I was like, oh, something special. This is a special moment. You know, when you just have that thing, you're like, this is one of those moments yes. that, that is going to be large. And I, and I thanked the deers for their welcome. And I, <laughs> and I walked um, the last few um, steps and then came over the peak and then looked down at the, the Khalil Gibran Memorial and, and just so moved by it, mm-hmm. like... So moved, so moved. I'd just been in um, in uh, New York City like the week before, and New York City was where they um, where he wrote um, the prophet. Yes. Um, and so uh, I had gone to the to his house uh, where he'd written. It was destroyed now, and there's just apartments there. But it was um, all part of this this pilgrimage yes. thing. Was going to these places of these people that have deeply inspired me so I get to um, his memorial and there's a fountain in the middle of it and I sat there and I wrote some poetry and I sat on the fountain and it was this beautiful moment and then it was like this thing inside saying you need to get in the fountain you, you need to get in that water and and of course immediately you're like I'm just gonna look like an idiot why would I do that but I it was that deeper knowledge that mm. that prophetic something that intuition that god voice that whatever you want to name it yeah. i had to get in the water so i got in the water and it was that moment where i i kind of i don't know baptized like i went under the water and kind of yes. it was this symbolic moment and i came up and as i came up out of the water it was my declaration my commitment my um my day to kind of almost covenant this is the day that i choose to be a writer for the rest of my life regardless of any rejection regardless of whatever wall comes up against me whatever whatever block there is going to be this is the day that i commit myself to being a writer because it's god's calling on my life because it's who i'm meant to be because i can't do anything other and so i baptized myself in that place as crazy and weird as this story is i know but it was it's the moment that i keep coming back to when i get a rejection letter i picture the Carlo Gibran Memorial. Mm. When when I get an email that says we loved your work but we just can't take you, I picture the Carlo Gibran Memorial. It's become an anchor point for me 
that day that I committed myself as a writer, that this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life mm. as, as this creative person. We have loved sharing our creative stories with you today, uh, and we'd love to hear some of yours. Join us on on social media, on Instagram, and on Facebook, the Deep Place Podcast community, and share with us some of your own creative story. Uh, the seasons of your creative life would be really wonderful to hear. Um, the Deep Place podcast really is only just beginning. We're going to be bringing more and more episodes to you over the coming months. Uh, so please subscribe uh, and to keep following and hearing when the episodes come out. Uh, go onto iTunes and give us a rating, a review. Um, really, we'd love you just to share what we're doing here. Talk about it with your friends on your social media, whatever you'd like to do, this this new podcast that hopefully you are loving to listen to. And if you feel like you could support us monetarily, that would be wonderful as well. You can go over to patreon.com and you can give a, a monthly amount there if you look up at the Deeper Place podcast. This thing takes a lot of time and energy and production and all that stuff to run. So uh, if you can do that, that would be wonderful. The music from today's episode is from Joshua Furmeister and also Spike Mason and another guy named Tom Huey. Uh, We'll put all of their details into the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining us once again on the Deep Place podcast. We'll catch you next time.